Welcome to Working in the Weeds. I'm Christine Krebs, the Education and Training Specialist out here at the Center for Aquatic and Invasive Plants. And as per usual, sitting across from me is co-host Dr. Jay Farrell. Hi, Christine. Hey, um, and our guest for today is Dr. Brett Boltemeyer. Hey, it's really good to be here. I love this podcast, listen to it with my family. Um, they're going to be pretty excited that I'm on the podcast. Daddy's coming through the radio. So hi, kids. I promised I'd give them a shout out. Yeah, for sure. And everyone listening, Dr. Brett Boltemeyer is with the UF IFAS Pesticide Information Office. And before we have you kind of dive into the conversation with us today, please let our listeners know a little bit about you and your background and what brought you to the Pesticide Information Office as a scientist. It, it's a bit of a tangled story, but I guess we'll go back to being in undergraduate school in Indiana, of all places. Um, fell into working for a company that did aquatic plant management, of all things. Um, and that really led to a desire to figure out more of what was going on with that whole process, where they come from, what is it that we're really doing, and took me here to the University of Florida with the Center for Aquatic and Invasive Plants. Um, that's where I did my master's and PhD, really looking at managing plants and some of the technologies that are used, and then had to leave the safe confines of the university to go to private industry, where I was able to use a lot of the knowledge that I had um, here in graduate school to start applying these things out in the wild, shall we say. And then sort of a shift happened from aquatic plant research into really sort of the operations of doing this kind of work. So I was with a company that did aquatic work, so very fitting for my graduate work, but then also mosquito control. So a whole new element of um, managing problematic um, species. And from there really started shifting into how do we work these operations to be safe, effective, and kind of shifted to pesticide safety, which is really the focus of where I am now at the Pesticide Information Office is about safety. Well, it's really interesting. You you left your graduate studies and you went out as a subject matter expert working for this company. But before long, it wasn't really that you were there to help on the aquatic side. It was the overarching safety side. And now that you're back here helping train applicators, you've kind of had a different perspective. You sort of have seen it all at this point. Well, and it really started, I was an applicator at one point in time in the field, in some ways, maybe not having the training I wish I had um, leading into all of that. So taking the knowledge of how the systems work and mirroring that with, boy, I wish I had been trained a little better, really drove a passion to make sure that the applicators I worked with were getting a different level of training. Now, I also find it very interesting that you're you know, you are really dedicated toward the safety perspective. But there was a time when you were in college that you started getting into spelunking. So how does cave exploration and safety fit together? Because those two things really seem mutually exclusive to me. And, and of the uh, pastime activities I've had, spelunking may be one of the safer ones. So um, those of us who teach safety it's do as I say, not always as I do, right? We've seen that a million times. So yeah, I've hurt myself enough times that safety is really important. As you start getting older, that safety becomes a lot more important. So there was cave exploration. There was bull riding. What else was in this list of extremely unsafe events that you were doing? Skydiving, driving fast, lots of very dumb things that in my past uh, stick with me to this day in the aches and pains I have as an older gentleman. <laughs> so now on the backside of all this, now you're safety first, not safety third. That's right. You can avoid a whole lot of hurt long term if you take the right steps early on. So the UF IFAS Pesticide Information Office isn't just herbicides, aquatic plant management. It is so much more than that. So what areas of safety do you represent? 
So, I mean, it's really anything that's going to relate to pesticides. And we hear that term a lot and people assume pesticides means, oh, insects, right? No, pesticides is very encompassing. This is anything that is controlling plants, insects, fungus. Um, and you can imagine this is a wide stretch. It's growing food. It's protecting public health by controlling mosquitoes that carry disease. Um, it's ensuring that we can grow the things we need to grow and enjoy the places we want to enjoy um, by utilizing these tools. So I'm hearing agriculture, public health and safety, natural areas, just really anything and everything that pesticides are used in. Correct. So in our previous episode, we were talking about Rachel Carson and her landmark book, Silent Spring. And we went through what that book did, what it was for. And even though it's a pretty thick read and it gets you know, pretty tough at times to really work through some of the case studies she did. There were truly three things that she kept coming back to time and time again that was the basis of the entire work. One of them was we're using these materials out in the environment to kill specific pests, but no one is really concerning themselves about what else is this pesticide interacting with? What are the non-targets? What happens if it washes away from the field into a stream? What is the overall environmental impact? The second thing she was concerned about was we are releasing ever more toxic and ever more specific pesticides onto the market, and we're putting them into the hands of applicators with essentially no training, no licensing, no information about how to protect the environment or themselves. Meanwhile, they could literally go buy these materials in a shaker can at the hardware store. So is there any oversight and who is basically in charge for helping us protect ourselves and others? And third, she used a very heady argument that the Bill of Rights was put into place to protect Americans, to protect your speech, to protect your practice of religion, protect your right to a, a fair trial. But now we're releasing these pesticides into this nation with very little regard to our citizenry. Who is protecting the person not in the field that is not applying? So all of this came together in a very amazing way, in a, in a cultural event that led to the formation of the EPA, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, and the total rewrite of FIFRA, which is the Federal Fungicide, Insecticide, Rodenticide Act. And now here we are in a different era. So, Brett, with your background in pesticide safety, pesticide compliance, let's talk about where we were in 1962 with the production and the release of Silent Spring versus where are we now and have we made any progress? Yeah, it, and it's I, I tell anybody that will listen, you should definitely read the book, if nothing else, to understand the change in mindset that occurred. You, you talked about it was a real shift uh, and it's important to understand that. And it wasn't just pesticides. Um, you know, Rachel Carson sort of put voice to what became an environmental movement, the idea of protecting things long term. In my world with pesticides, it really does start with, you mentioned what are these doing in the environment, the non-targets. Well, for me, the focus of the non-target is the people applying them. We very much want to make sure that the folks that are putting out these tools are themselves protected. And so that means we've got to find a way to tell them how to do this. And how do we do that? We don't know where they're going to be and when. And that's where you start getting the idea of, well, we put the instructions 
on the product that they're using. So now we're getting this registration process where we are looking at what these chemicals are doing and providing instructor instructions for the applicators so that they know how to utilize it to protect themselves and others as well. So those use directions, where do they come from? And are they the same across all pesticides? So they are very different, not just across all pesticides, but even if you have a pesticide that's the same type of chemical, from one product to another, it may differ. And that comes through this registration process that the EPA does a lot of vetting on these chemistries, you know, asking questions, where does it go if it's in water? Um, how long does it stick around? How does it break down? Is it toxic to things like birds or insects or all the other things that it may interact with? And then ultimately, what is it doing to people? Where are they likely to be exposed and how do we protect them? So through that registration process, there are study after study after study, not just determining in a broad sense, what do these things do, but putting clear definitions on that finding exact concentrations and then building in a protection factor again for the people utilizing it the people that are in the environment and the environment itself so what happens if the epa through this testing that they do that they find that there's a non-target let's say it's um you know a, a protected bird species or not even a protected bird species let's say it's a, a duck or a, some other waterfowl and they have found that this pesticide really is toxic to that animal what does the EPA then do? How do they then protect those non-targets? So they've got a couple of options. Um, the most extreme option would be it is too great a risk. This doesn't make mustard. This does not get registered. We're not going to use it. Um, we think of some of the chemistries that Rachel Carson was very concerned with. They wouldn't pass muster in today's EPA. They would have been completely unregistered. EPA would have gone through and said, nope, this is not going to make it into the environment. We're done here. Clearly, there are chemicals that don't fall into that but could cause harm. Now it is, what is the harm? What is the risk? And how do we start mitigating that? Is it through reducing how much goes out? Is it where we put it? What sorts of mitigation pieces can be put in place to protect that species? Um, if things can be put in place that the EPA, in working with some of their other sister agencies, determines can adequately be done. They may release that with instructions on how to reduce where it could be used um, and some of the things that will protect those species. So maybe you can put it out this time of year, but not that time of year when that species is most active or something like that. I, I think a great example, if you look at labels now, you'll see what are called the bee boxes. So you'll see on the label, a big picture of a bee with a box that gives very specific instructions. Don't put it out during these times when bees are present when these flowers may be present, it, it can be very explicit on what you can and can't do in order to protect those non-target species. So a lot of work goes into trying to understand what these materials do in the environment. But then the next step, I guess, is what now? Okay, so it is released. You have that label. There's that big list of instructions, and these are not just uh, suggestions. They are legally binding things that are on the label. So how do you then ensure that that material is going to be used that way? So some of that is through just enforcement. So having an agency, um, the EPA is saying these are the things you can and can't do. And in today's world, that then goes to the states to make sure that folks are using these products correctly. 
So that could be inspecting facilities. It could be going where people are doing applications and asking them questions to make sure they're utilizing that appropriately. Perhaps one of the biggest things that is done um, is one of the points you mentioned with Rachel Carson, that this is in the hands of untrained people. And the EPA has said for many of these products, there does need to be training. And that is now a formalized part of the process. This is what we mean when we say licensed applicators. It is a process that they must go through a set of training and then demonstrate that they are competent in the things that they were trained on to handle these products. So there is a training of the applicator now. All right. So now you just said something that perked my ears up. You said some of these require training. So are you saying that not all pesticides are created equal? That is correct. There are a class called restricted use pesticides, which means it restricts who may use those pesticides and who can purchase those pesticides. And then there are other that are general use. Think of the um, pesticides that you find at your big box stores, Home Depot, Lowe's, Ace Hardware. Um, these are products that you don't have to have a license for. Now, you still have to follow that label. You can still get in trouble if you do not follow the instructions that are on that label, but they're not requiring a set license per se. So even homeowners who purchase these products should really pay attention to the label and consider what their role is with this product and how they can responsibly use it in their environment, in their personal environment, whether it's their home or their yard. And, and, and that's a really good way to put it, re responsibility. You know, Using it according to the label will protect themselves. It will protect everything else around them, all the other things that are growing and living in that area. And if we get right down to it, it protects you from getting in trouble. And none of us really wants to get in trouble, right? So the label is there to tell you what you can and can't do, but ultimately it's there to tell you how to use it as safely as possible and as effectively as possible. Um, I know I'm looking at uh, Dr. Farrell here. He has probably put things together where you get the instruction sheet and you're going to put together a bookshelf and they give you the instruction sheet. He's probably like me. You just throw it away and go, I don't need these no, instructions. I, I need the pictures. I don't need any of the text. Yeah. I just need the picture. And you know, they always give you extra parts. There's a bunch of screws left over at the end. I am much more efficient at putting it together because I have parts left over. So they should have consulted me when they wrote those instructions. That's right. And then we put these shelves together and then what inevitably happens is you put too many books on it and the whole thing falls apart because you didn't do it the way it was supposed to be done. It's not much different with pesticides. If you use them according to the label, they will work according to all of the research that went into making that label. And I always tell people, you've got to be cautious when you just look at the the name on the container and say, oh, well, I'm familiar with that. I've been using that for years. But there may be variations, and that may not be the same product that you used five years ago, 10 years ago, or six months ago. So anytime you buy something, you really do need to read the label to make sure you got what you think you got and that you're using it the right way. Well, and, and I'll take that a step further. So a, a lot of people are familiar with the product Roundup. And when you say Roundup, people immediately think glyphosate because that is one of the active ingredients in some formulations of Roundup. Now, when saying that, our listeners should be going, but I thought all Roundup was glyphosate, and that's not the case. There are homeowner products that you will buy that have no glyphosate in it at all. So reading the label is the only way to make sure you know what is in that jug. And furthermore, to your point, even if it's the exact same brand with the exact same stuff, there may be different instructions than there were two years ago. I have to wear different equipment. There are places I cannot use it. There's rates I cannot use. These instructions do change because 
registration for these products is not an end point. They don't get registered and that's the end of the story. The EPA is consistently reevaluating and they are putting into place a requirement that everything must go through re-registration. So nothing is fixed when we are talking about pesticides. It is always moving in a direction toward protection, safety, all of the things that we've talked about earlier. So I'm hearing continuous improvement, continuous research, and continuous uh, emphasis on safety and, you know, considering the user and the product at the same time, as well as the environment. Well, the EPA, one of the things I say all the time, the EPA has adopted this statement, science is never settled. They are constantly saying, it, do we know more? And if we know more, how do we need to change this label? How do we need to change these use patterns to make sure we are using them in the most responsible way possible? And, and it's not just the products and the labels. Uh, we'll go back to training of applicators. That process evolves as well. Um, here just recently, the EPA completely changed what their certification and training standards were, meaning across the country, states that have been doing it a particular way have to put in these new things. So it's not just the product, it's the folks using them. They are continuing to reevaluate as well. So what does that certification and licensing part look like? So when you hear someone say, I'm a certified applicator, what does that mean? So that will mean slightly different things in the, I believe it is 56 states, tribes, and territories that the EPA approves plans for. So there's some subtle differences uh, from one state to another because the states get to kind of pick what they're going to do. But overall, this process looks like there is material available for me to study that tells me how to do um, my job, how to utilize these pesticides, the risks that are associated with them. And then you have to prove that competency. And that is usually in the form of an exam. So a multiple choice um, exam that you have to have a minimum score on in order to move to that next phase of getting your license. So this isn't just a license means I paid a fee and I'm done. There is a proving that I am competent to handle these materials based on the score on that exam. So in the state of Florida, about how many applicators, licensed applicators do we have? And about how many people are going through this exam process every year? Is it a few? Is it a lot? Um, it is a lot. It is. We say that there are over 70,000 licensed applicators here in the state. You can argue about, are they truly certified according to EPA? Florida has some more strict rules than the EPA puts down because states can always be more strict, never less strict. So around 70,000, and we roll eight to 9,000 applicators test every year here in the state of Florida. So it's not an insignificant number. So of that 8,000, what are the pass rates? I mean, is this just one of those things that, you know, you go, you watch a little thing online, and then you fill out a multiple choice, and then everything is good to go? And is that how it works? Or how, how, what is the process? No, it is certainly more rigorous than that. Um, so there are multiple exams that they must pass in order to get a license. The very first is core, which is kind of basic knowledge of pesticides and risk. And then they have to get category specific. So if you are going to be an aquatic applicator, for instance, you would pass that core exam. That's 50 questions and an aquatic exam that is 50 questions. Now you're thinking, well, again, you just watch a video. It's real easy peasy questions. 
I wouldn't say that's the case. Our pass rate on these exams, it fluctuates, but my general rule is it's about 50%. So this is not a, a gift, a check the box. This is really exploring, do you know the information you need to know in order for us to say, go forth and use these products? And they are tested on safety and plant identification. And there's there's a lot of stuff in here, right? It's do you understand you have to read the label, what is on the label? Can you do the math associated with this? If you are saying you cannot put out more than this amount, can you prove to us that you know how to do that? So yes, it is everything from safety to efficacy to making sure that you're using that product as effectively as possible. So in Florida, and, and the, this whole podcast is really directed toward the aquatic plant manager. So around how many aquatic applicators do we have in this state that are that are certified? Um, it, it does vary, but it's six or so thousand is where I usually peg that. Um, and what's really interesting with that 6,000 is they're actually not required to have a license. So if well, we go- well, n- None of them? So this is correct because in- the certification that we talked about, that is only for restricted use products. And in the aquatic environment, there are no restricted use products for use in Florida that our applicators will be utilizing. Okay, but why aren't they restricted use? Because they're going in our water. So restricted use is used for those products that either have a higher level of toxicity or a higher level of risk of harming the environment or people. And this is all based on data. So it's all based on that research that's done during the registration process. And there's very clear-cut tiers. This is not, it's by feel, and it's, well, we think this is more very clear benchmarks and none of the products used in aquatics meet those benchmarks and therefore they are all general use products. So what I'm hearing is those that are registered for use in aquatic settings aren't even dangerous enough or risky enough to be restricted use to have that standard of safety obligation for those aquatic applicators. Absolutely. And it's it's important to know that that restriction comes not just on is that chemical potentially dangerous or not because almost any chemical can be potentially dangerous. It is all about at what use rates are you putting it out in the environment? Where are you doing that? How is it being used? So the labels instructions and the rates and the chemistry itself will determine if it falls that. And for those aquatic herbicides, they don't meet that mark. According to how you're supposed to use them on the label. Correct. And so back to the fact that there are 6,000 aquatic applicators that are certified, why are they certified then if they don't really have to be? So what we see in the state of Florida is by and large, people don't go, the bare minimum is enough. They are always wanting to go beyond. They don't just want to be compliant. They want to be good stewards. They want to be professionals. Um, A lot of cases, if you own your own business, there's insurance benefits to having licensed applicators. But my experience has been that they want to know how to use these properly. And by having that test, by having that license, it's something they can take pride in. I passed that test. I know this information. This means a lot to me. Well, and just thinking if I worked in a company and I was an applicator and my coworker was licensed, but I wasn't, be like, dang, I want to get licensed, especially if my company supports it and funds it and wants me to be a better version of my job, right? Absolutely. I literally talked to a farmer this morning whose whole crew was going to be licensed and none of them needed a license, but it was truly for bragging rights within the crew. I scored better than you. I am 
the premier applicator on this team. It, it, it was just all about being the best of the best in that crew. It was pretty cool to listen to the story. Oh, and, and a lot of the applicators I've worked with, so in my previous role um, working in operations, we actually had a competition every year with our applicators where they sort of had to go through the gauntlet for about four hours and answering questions. And they all tried to play like, oh, this is no big deal. Who really cares? But man, when it came for individual scores and winning the trophy, yet mattered a whole lot. So they take pride in what they do. And because you think about it, applicators are humans that live in Florida as well. They fish the waterways. They eat the food that is used and produced with these pesticides. So they're they're human. They want to be proud of what they do. So you've just mentioned that around 50% of the people that take these exams are not successful. So the test is hard. So what is the UFIFAS Pesticide Information Office doing to help them prepare? And what does that preparation process look like? So for us, we'll, we'll start at the very basics. If there's going to be a test, there must be material that test is based on. And our office works to write the study manuals. Um, those who have on this listening to this podcast that have a license know it's a big book that has all kinds of information. That's part of what we do. I would say our focus now has been not just having the material, it has been making that material even more approachable to the applicator um, and in formats that maybe make more sense to them. So in what ways are you making these testing materials more accessible? So one would be, certainly we're always going to have printed manuals, but not everybody wants to read a big book. It's great for a reference, but those of your podcast listeners are listening to a podcast because it is something that I can do while I'm driving to the job. It is much more accessible to me. And I look at that and think this is how our applicators could learn. How much more could they benefit from not just reading a chapter, but from hearing experts talk about the things they're supposed to know. So it's opening new avenues of learning and making it more accessible even in other languages. So here in the state of Florida, we have a lot of folks that work in agriculture and other areas where English is their second language. Spanish would be their primary language. So why don't we start making materials that makes this accessible to them as well? Many of them have been doing this job for a long time very, very well and safely, but they haven't been able to get that certification because there's that language barrier. So what can we do to make the information as available as possible and as many avenues as possible so the maximum number of people are learning about how to do this as safely as possible? So your office is working right now to make Spanish materials. Yes, we actually have several CEUs that are already posted online. Those of you who don't know what CEUs are, once you pass your exam, you're not done. So much like the re-registration and the changing what these processes are, you have to re-up your license. That can either be done from proving I can pass the exam again or by sitting and learning more about your craft. That's what a CEU is. It's continuing your education. Um, so we have several modules available in Spanish for that. Um, we are just done with the first two of our manuals in Spanish. And going forward is we are updating our materials because of the change with EPA. We will be adding Spanish um, and really giving those materials a lot more um, accessibility, I think, to the applicators. So you talk about printed manuals, revisiting those, refreshing them, then also pivoting and adding Spanish materials for more accessibility for more of these users. I think I heard during a conference that you're also online now. What's with the testing online? 
So those of us that can remember back to when we had lockdowns everywhere and everybody was stuck at home, that kind of shut our testing down for a little bit because the traditional model for testing in the state was going into a county extension office, which is fantastic because you get to interact with our wonderful county faculty. But clearly, if things are shut down, you've got nowhere to go. So we were already starting to work on the ability to test at home. Now, testing at home opens up a whole second thing. So we're, we're out of everybody being at home and some of the weird times that we had. But we still have folks where their schedule may not fit a traditional testing schedule. So showing up at 2 o'clock in the afternoon once a month may not work. Um, I think of our farmers that, you know what, it's raining on a Sunday and I need to take this test. Nothing is open. Being able to test at home makes that possible. Now, this does not mean you have a booklet and you just get to take home the test. It is still a secured exam where you have to pass with the same competency level as if you went into a county extension office. It may be even a little higher, right? Because there is a tremendous level of scrutiny since no one is there. The slightest hint that someone is not being genuine in that exam could result in a failure. It, absolutely. The the software that is running in the background when they are taking that exam is, it is monitoring a lot. I would say that from my experience, having been a test proctor and seeing test proctoring, it probably is more secure um, than some of what we have in person. So it not only makes it more accessible, it is just as secure. And for me, being in the pesticide information office, I now have a greater ability to pull statistics of the exam. So this software will look at that test and go, are there any questions that are really unfair? That even people that pass the exam with flying colors miss a question. All right, maybe that's a really badly worded question. Are there questions that are maybe too easy? So we're able to really start refining to make this test something that is as fair as can be. And so when you say rigorous at-home tests and these standards, I kind of start thinking about when I had online classes and would still have to take a test from home and complete a college course, and I would kind of have to pick up the laptop, scan the room, show that there aren't notes on my hands or notes on my desk. There's this sort of quality assurance to it. Is that the same thing? Absolutely. It's showing that your environment is secure and it's monitoring you throughout that exam to make sure you're not doing anything. Good example, when we were testing this system early on, I thought, I'm pretty slick. I can cheat this system. Had stuff hiding around me and waited till the test was going and I'm looking at notes. And um, the person that was proctoring it for the company didn't know I was taking the exam. Well, that I review all of these exams. They sent an email to me that said, this person cheated. And I got to send back a response that says, I know they did. It was me. So it's pretty rigorous. It does a pretty darn good job of uh, making sure that these exams are secure. So you mentioned earlier in the past, 100% of this was handled at the county extension office. So what role does county extension still play in this process? Our, our county extension agents are critical to getting this information out. So our office is not giant. We don't have 300 people in our office. There are a few of us that work on these materials. And without the county extension agents, one, just physically being across the state, but two, being able to interact with um, all of these stakeholders in a very personal way. These are folks that live in their county. They may know them. It really puts a face to it instead of just, well, the office up in Gainesville, there's a much more personal touch. So without the county extension agents, um, we wouldn't be able to accomplish the things that we accomplish. Yeah. So many of our listeners work in the weeds, research 
invasive plant management or simply interested and curious about it. So if they want to stay connected with the Pesticide Information Office or any resources available to them, what what suggestions do you have? Well, we, we just got done talking about county extension agents. Working with your county extension program is great. Every county has one. You can look online to find your nearest office. They would be happy to help you. Um, our office does have a website. I believe that will be um, in the show notes. Um, you can check out our website. There's lots of good information there. We also have a blog. We tend to put out two blogs every month. Um, they get a little bit uh, crazy. I've done a few with Spotify playlist. Yes, pesticide Spotify playlist. We, we have a lot of fun. We cover a range of topics, updates, um, just general information about pesticides and things that are, are happening. And I do know that y'all can subscribe to it, right? So if you visit one blog today and you want to stay alerted when there are new ones coming, you go down to the bottom of the blog and you can hit subscribe and then they'll be delivered to your uh, email every day after that, right? Or every time you guys post. Absolutely. When we post, it comes straight to your email box. Um, make sure it doesn't go to the spam. Um, we, we work hard on these bad dad jokes and the corny humor that we have. Um, but no, you can subscribe. It'll show up to your mailbox. You don't have to keep checking back to see if we posted anything. So if you do find yourself on our website reading our blog, um, I hope that from the conversation today and those materials, the one takeaway you have is that pesticide safety, safety in general, is not some checklist. It's not some thing you do. It's a mindset. It's thinking about what can I do to improve safety. And that's kind of the mantra that I use in the office. Every day I show up, what can I do to make myself and others more safe than they were before? Well, and if I had a takeaway as well, I want to go back to Rachel Carson. She was sounding an alarm in 1962 that our pesticide technology had outpaced our ability to handle that technology. And one person was saying, we have a real problem. And with one person and one book, she started a movement that created this massive system that we've described here today with registration and all of these things. And the wonderful thing, that Bill of Rights argument, that Bill of Rights discussion, where is the government? How are they protecting you? The government didn't say, let's just appease this one person. Let's put something in place that might look like we are doing something, but really we're not. What they did is put a science-based process into place that continues to grow, that continues to evolve, that continues to learn based on what it is currently doing. It is a big, robust, multi-year process. And because of this, we are now at a place where these pesticides are judged harshly. The EPA is not concerned whether or not this product actually makes it to the market or not. The EPA is interested in, if it makes it to the market, what is the environmental impact? And the fact that one lady was able to do this, who everybody claimed wasn't a scientist, it gives us the opportunity to stop and pause and say, we have a voice too. Just because you may be the only person that is sounding an alarm, realize that if you are consistent and if you are really talking about something that matters and matters a lot, people will eventually listen. We now have the EPA. We are now at a better place than just about any country in the world because we use science. We don't use emotion. And the things we're doing has positioned us wonderfully to protect our food supply, to protect our citizenry. And we owe a lot of that to Rachel Carson. Speaking of listening, thank you all so much for listening to Working in the Weeds. If you have any questions or suggestions for the podcast, email us at caip at ifis.ufl.edu. And you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. 
Thank you for joining us as we continue to work on turning science into solutions.